was trying to figure out what the hell is all the hype about. So I went on my Spotify and I was listening to like some of her songs. I was like, Antihero's a little bit of a jam. Sip and Chat Cafe. Welcome to Sip and Chat Cafe, a safe space for stimulating conversations. No topic is off limits. If it matters to you, it matters to us. I'm your host, Atara G, and our producer, Motel Maurice. For more information about this podcast and more, please visit MotelMaurice.com. So many of you don't know, Motown and I have written two screenplays together. We've collaborated on many projects, but we've got two full screenplays under our belt. We've been through multiple rewrites, contest submissions. We even got as far as a deal memo. And then we hit a wall and nothing happened. (laughs) It's definitely an exciting journey, but then can be deflating when all of a sudden it stops. So our guest today has been through his own entertainment journey. Let's welcome CEO of CubeStream, Toby Moore. Toby. Toby. Hello. Hey, happy to be here. (laughs) Yes, we're excited you're here too. I understand that you are an actor. Yes. And when did you realize you wanted to be an actor? Well, you know, it's funny. So I, I my, my dad used to watch, take me to the movie theater all the time. And uh, sometimes we'd go see a movie like 10 or 15 times. I remember when Ghostbusters came out, we went and saw that over and over and over. And then, the, you know, just all, all these movies. And so I, I knew I wanted to be an actor as a young kid. But I remember when I was 13, I, I got off the bus I walked inside and I was like, mom, I need to talk to you. She's like, okay. And I can t- I remember seeing the look on her face. She's like, well, what's this about? You know, and I took it so seriously and I was just 13 and, and, uh, and she's like, okay. So we sat down in the living room and I just said, I want to be an actor. And she's like, okay, what, what do you, you know? Okay. And then that, that was it. I kind of expected her to kind of like get me involved with, mm. with stuff. Cause I was so young and, but I was also in the swim team at the time. And so there wasn't really, I, I really didn't, uh, start acting then I just just told her and then just always in my head uh, kept wanting to do it I, I did audition for a play at the end of high school my senior year but I always had uh, vocal problems and you know I couldn't be heard from stage I didn't even understand the concept back then that I needed to be heard from stage so I didn't get the job and went into college and uh, studied marketing um, actually I was undecided for two years. I really just went to college to be on the swim team, uh, really. And then, uh, but, to, but my junior year, they forced me to make a decision and I chose acting and auditioned oh, okay. to get in the acting program. And that's how it all started. Well, that worked out then. Yeah. Yeah. Swimming to acting. Exactly. <laughs> you swam up to the stage. I swam up to the stage. Yeah. <laughs> so after you, so where did you, um, get your acting degree from? I studied at Northern Illinois University, and I was really lucky because at the time I knew I had to stay there. I wasn't going to go to another school or a conservatory or anything like that, and and, and so I, I tried to get in the acting program, and so I took an acting class, which was just like a, an elective. It was Anybody could take it, mm-hmm. and I remember telling the teacher, I said, I want to get in the acting department. He kept saying, 
Well, Toby, it's very difficult. They take students from schools that where they, they, they only focus on acting and, and you know, you, you're just starting out. So you can't just get in. You have to audition. And, and so he told me who to talk to. And I, I was really determined. So I knocked on the door to the, uh, the head <laughs> uh, acting. She's the head acting teacher, but she also ran the department. Okay. And I sat down with her and, and basically didn't leave her office until she said, yes, I could audition. She kept telling me no. And I was like, no, 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 I have to. You have to let me. And so uh, I got an audition and, and made it in. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. That's what determination will do for you yeah yeah and I was really lucky because they did have I went through it ended up being a, like a conservatory we did mm. two years of, of voice training two years of movement and two years of acting and then all the other stuff that goes along with it they had three stages so mm. they always kept us doing plays and it was a really great experience what was your favorite part of the program you know I really liked movement oh okay uh it was they taught us an actor's yoga, really, for so that would open up your voice. And I'd, I've always been considered myself more of a physical actor, mm -hmm. where I would approach my roles more uh, uh, with with physicality. Mm -hmm. And so that really hit home with me. And I really loved I really loved uh, doing that class. Obviously, the acting was my favorite part, but some of the training that they had there really got me interested. That's pretty cool. I've never I've been in one play mm -hmm. in high school. I also don't project my voice. I'm always mm. being told, speak up, Atara, we mm. can't hear you, we can't hear you. Even just my regular speaking voice is very low. So, yeah. yeah. You have a, a, a John Ritter familiar about you. Do I really? Yes. Yeah. A John, I've never heard that before. No. <laughs> well, you said physicality, and, uh -huh. I, and I love John Ritter's physicality, Three's Company. He's yeah, the greatest of course. There, so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that. And yeah, you kind of remind me of him a little. <laughs> I was, when you walked in, I was like, have I seen this guy before? Because you look very familiar. Really? You even and look more like his son. Yes. And now that he said really? John Ritter, I can see it. I've never heard this. This is interesting. <laughs> I've heard a lot of things. But yeah, yeah. John Ritter, I'll add that to the list. I love John Ritter, though. He's oh, great. Yeah, yeah, he's great. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Three's company. <laughs> so you graduate from Northern Illinois University mm -hmm. with an acting degree. And how do you get yourself to Los Angeles? Well, so at the time, around the same time I, I got into the acting department at Northern, I started doing modeling work for uh, an agency in Chicago. And so in the summer times, I, would, I, would, I, I went to Milan and would model there. And I, I went to uh, New York City and I'd model there. And so I was very fortunate where I, I didn't really have to have uh, a normal job when I was in, at, that, at that part of college. So I was just doing catalog jobs in Chicago and they paid pretty well. So I remember my dad and mom, they were very supportive of me being an actor, but they just, my dad kept saying, he said, look, if you're going to do it, you got to move to LA. He's like, don't sit around this town and, and you know, try to make a living as an actor, you got to go where the money is, you know, so uh, if you're really going to try to do it as a career. So I, I had the support and, and was working as a, a model back then. So I just bought a car and drove out. <laughs> I drove out with two other actors that I, yeah, with, with, that I, I graduated with. That's pretty supportive of your parents. Like most people who say, I want to be an actor are literally anything with the arts. The parents are like, uh, no. I wanted to be a ceramicist, and that was shut down pretty quickly. A ceramicist? <laughs> yeah, I wanted to throw pots. Uh -huh. I wanted to go to art school and make pottery. Wow. And 
everyone was like, no, you're not, no, you're not going to do told that. You no. They told me no. And unfortunately I listened, uh-huh. you know, I think, I think sometimes we forget that we don't have to listen to our parents in mm-hmm. certain situations. Yeah. And that would have been one of them. Well, it's never too late. I mean, <laughs> I, I still throw pots. I just don't do it for a living. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But you, you're right. I mean, uh, most, I know I have a, a very, I had a very supportive family. I know most actors that I knew didn't get that kind of support from their family. They told them no, and they would have to go do it anyway. So, mm-hmm. so you get out here mm-hmm. and what happens next? So I was also lucky in the sense that my modeling agency in Chicago had set up a bunch of meetings. They didn't want me to come out here. Actually, they were the only ones who didn't want me to. They wanted me to, <laughs> to model. So they wanted to send me to Europe and they wanted to do stuff like that. But they they had called uh, some agencies mm-hmm. that they knew in, in Los Angeles. And it, it was a different industry back then. It was very different. It, things have changed so much. And so, but back then, uh, I... I just I, I they set me up with like 15 different meetings mm-hmm. with all these different agencies and and I met with all of them and found one that that w- was a great fit and started auditioning immediately. I started getting, you know, between 3 and 6 auditions every single week. Wait, the modeling agency set you up with acting agencies? They set me up with an acting agency and wow. they had some kind of commission split. Okay. Yeah, that lasted a couple years. Okay. And and so that's that's how that worked out. Okay. Mm-hmm. Even that's great. I mean, if you're coming out to LA, any help is help. That's pretty yeah, cool. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was it was a fun experience. Yeah. Did you those two people you drove out with, did you guys live together, get a place together? We did. Yeah, we we got a place in Studio City. Mm. And one of them moved home actually not that long after, but it just as fate would have it, uh, a guy that I met from Venezuela who I used to model with, mm-hmm. uh, he moved to LA and so he moved right in with with me and uh, her name was Rachel. We lived uh, all three of us together for about two years, mm-hmm. and uh, then we moved and went our separate ways. That's the smoothest, smoothest moving to LA transition story I've ever. Is heard. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It was pretty. It felt pretty it smooth at the time. Cool. So, what was your first booking out here? The first booking was uh, it was a Showtime movie called A Separate Piece, mm-hmm. and. That was that was uh, I was very fortunate with that as well. Uh, I got the audition and and they they it, it actually you know I was auditioning so much for about six or seven months and I was getting callbacks but nothing was really happening and I, I remember getting really frustrated at the time but then you know keeping a positive attitude but then when when a separate piece auditions came I auditioned for. A role that I didn't actually book, and then mm-hmm. they then they're like, "Oh no, you're not right for this character. Uh, you're, you're right for this other character." And uh, so I auditioned for that, and they're like, "No, no, no, you're not right for that one. You need to come back and do." So uh-huh. this is I had like five or six callbacks for that one, and then I eventually booked it. Uh, the the character needed to be a good swimmer, mm-hmm. and I was a competitive swimmer, so mm-hmm. so it really it it really kind of fit and worked out. And it, it's interesting because it's based on a famous book, so a lot of uh, high school kids have to read this book in, in their English class. It's called A Separate Piece, and and I had to read that in my English class, and it was it was a big deal for for my my English teacher and my family because. When we when we read that book, I got elected. This is my freshman year in high school to uh-huh. to write the author. His name was John Knowles, and uh, wrote him and invited him to come speak at our class. He didn't make it, but he wrote us back. And so I always had a special connection with that book. Did you ever write him again and tell him you were? <laughs> no, I didn't. And you know what? I think he passed away by the time we Aww. filmed it. So that's pretty yeah. cool, though. That's like a nice. 
Yeah. It's a nice memory how yeah. that worked out. Yeah, it was pretty yeah. it was interesting. I imagine, like you said, you had to go or five or six auditions for that. Yeah. I don't know if I could handle the the highs and lows of acting. Like mm. I know I know quite a few actors and I just don't see how you guys manage with like life in itself can be disappointing, mm-hmm. but how do you deal with the constant dis- disappointment in acting? How do I deal with it? It, it, it's it's really tough, you know. And back then, I, I I was able to get through it really easy. I always told myself, well, if I'm getting callbacks, then that that means eventually one day I'm going to work. And so I kept a positive attitude. But then, even years after a separate piece, when I was auditioning, I probably went through times where I didn't take it so well, mm-hmm. where I, you know, I would cry myself to sleep or, or just yeah. be really really upset about how things were going. And so. It's it's just been an up and down. Sometimes I'm great with it. Sometimes I'm not. And I think I'm to a place now where I think I'll be fine with it mm-hmm. for the rest of my life. But Motown, I'm going to ask you to chime in on this mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I know you have gone on your fair share of auditions. I've helped you with them. <laughs> How do you manage not getting a call back or not getting casted or just the, the disappointment? You kind of become immune to it. It's a part of the process. <laughs> you, you have to. Because no matter who you are, you're not going to book everything. Mm-hmm. It just becomes a part of you. Um, yeah, you get used to it. That's it. That's it. That's it. You can't have high expectations. Now, I, I think there's a moment where you can allow yourself to imagine what it would be like to book this commercial, to, to be a star in this film. But then... And you take that good energy into the auditions and you just kind of leave it behind you. And move on. Yeah. Like the sides that you're using to prepare with, when you're done, rip it up, throw it away. I don't know. Just it's you have to move on to the next. You just cannot dwell. You are damaging yourself by dwelling and wishing to get this role. The faster you can forget about it is the better. And then there's another mindset. Your audition is just preparation for the next audition. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's really it. I think we could apply that to just not dwelling to just life in general. Because I think a lot of us these days, I know I'm a dweller. Mm-hmm. And I've had to like force myself to move on from situations or, or even job interviews. Oh my gosh, I used to dwell on, oh, I can't wait for them to call me and give me this job. Yeah. And they never called. So mm-hmm. <laughs> disappointment. Uh, I think disappointment, moving on from disappointment is a skill that I really think they should teach in school. Yeah, absolutely. They really should. (laughs) So I hear that you booked something on Law & Order, SUV, which was one of my favorite shows. Oh, really? Yes. I will watch new episodes, Uh old episodes, episodes I've seen five times, last five minutes of an episode. I Mm. I love that show. Um, which one were you on? So I was, it's so funny that this episode, it's, you know, I always got to remind people and you know, I always got to remind people that this is acting. Okay. So in special <laughs> victims unit is all sex crimes. Yeah. Okay. So, but uh, it was a great booking. They, they flew me to New York and uh, got to work with Chris Maloney and Mariska Hardigay and, and ice, ice tea. And it was just, it was a really great experience, but my character, I played a fraternity president who was hazing people a little too much with pledge paddles and uh, was uh, basically essentially had raped some uh, some pledges with the paddle. 
and uh, finally got busted in the end. You know, Toby, I think I saw that episode. Did you? Every, oh everyone, my gosh. everyone says that. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm now. I'm gonna have to go back. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and look for you. You know, like, it's so, I know that guy. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny the following that SVU has because I also did CSI Miami. I was. I watched a, that too. <laughs> yeah, and then did a, a Katie Holmes movie called First Daughter, and and. Uh, a, a USA Channel movie called Murder in Greenwich, and and worked with uh, some great people there. Maggie Grace, who played mm-hmm. uh, the and and what is it? She was in Lost, and then she did the what's that movie called? Oh my gosh, we have I to didn't edit see that her out. Lost. <laughs> She's the one with uh, Liam Neeson, who uh, where he rescues his daughter. Taken. Taken. Yes, yeah. yes. She plays the daughter I in have that. A special set of skills. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah. So SVU was. It was it was a really great experience. And and so what I was going to say is that the following they have is so even the other stuff that I've done, uh, SVU, that's what people recognize me from. They're like, hey, you're from SVU. <laughs> you know, I heard that years later and I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, the, the following. I mean, people love that show. Yeah, I think it's the actors. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the shows are just ripped from headlines. You know, yeah. like everybody can, I think relate to some part of every episode mm-hmm. i mean i've been paddled not when i was being hazed yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrible joke yeah. has any fans taken it a little bit too far in terms of separating you from the character well yeah sometimes people will just look at me different they're like oh that was you and I'm like, yeah, but you know, that was acting, right? You know, and we actually didn't film any scenes where I was doing that. I was just in the court stand acting, you know, but people are just like, you can see in their face, you know, they think, okay, you're a real bad person, you know? <laughs> we just did an episode on therapy. And uh-huh. so I think those people need to have some therapy so yeah, they probably. can tell the difference between reality <laughs> and not reality. Yeah, it's and I think they know, but then there's just some kind of disconnect where they're just yeah. like, is he really like that? Is he, you know, does he really rape people with pledge paddles, you know? <laughs> well, if so. you're a fan of a show and you're a fan of an actor or actress, it may be sometimes hard to disconnect mm-hmm. or and especially if you're a fan of the character in the show mm-hmm. it may be hard to disconnect that person from them not being that person right I don't know if that makes sense so even though you were just on the show once they probably see everybody as this is who they are exactly yeah, yeah. and it's a compliment to you because you were so believable yeah yeah it's 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 it was it's fun seeing people you know most people they understand though yeah you yeah. know so. <laughs> most people most people we would hope yeah <laughs> so we you t- you mentioned we talked earlier about the determination that it took for you to get into your acting mm-hmm. um at, into the acting department at school mm-hmm. and i want to segue that into um your father's book playing with the enemy mm-hmm can you tell me a little bit about what his book is about? I know it, had, it, it was very successful. Um, you had 12 to 16 reprints. Yeah, well, the story was really interesting. It was based on, on my, my, my grandfather's story. So it's interesting. My, my, my dad grew up playing baseball, and his, his father, my grandfather, was always very supportive of that, of everything he did except for baseball. 
And so he he refused to go to my dad's games. He refused to to really get involved. And my dad always thought that was weird because my dad was in band as well. And and he always got you know my grandfather would go support him with that. So the day before my grandfather died, he had a heart problem, and my my dad and him went up to Chicago to see a doctor. And afterwards, they went to a steakhouse. You know, a good thing to do after you know having a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> and. They, uh, my, my dad asked me, he said, you know, why, why were you never supportive of me playing baseball? And so he, he told my dad the story and basically my, my grandfather grew up and this is what the story is about. My grandfather grew up in Southern Illinois and playing baseball at a small diamond, you know, dusty diamond that they kind of built themselves. Um, it wasn't, you know, professional or anything like that, but, uh, he was known as being the be one of the best baseball players in the, in the area. And he was only 15 years old and he played the game like a, like a grown man is what they said. You know, he, he controlled that he was a catcher and he just controlled the whole game and was excellent. And so one day, uh, a scout from the Brooklyn Dodgers came through the Dodgers were in Brooklyn back then. This is, uh, before world war II. And uh, saw his talent and, and wanted to recruit him, but he was still too young to to play for for professional team because he was 15 or 16 years old. And so they they he recruited him to play in the farm league. So he started playing for like uh, 10 cents a day uh, for these minor league teams in the area and started doing really well. And then when the plan was when he turned 18, they were going to bring him to Brooklyn and and play for the Dodgers. And right around that time, World War II broke out. And so he, him and his brother were going to join the Navy. And, and right before that, that kind of happened and he you know, solidified that deal, the scout called him up on the phone and said, look, he's like, you're going you're gonna to get drafted or you're, you're, you're going to go fight. And if you fight, you're probably going to die. So what I want to do for you is I, I think I can get you to play for the Navy touring baseball team. And that way you don't have to fight. You can play, you can play for the Navy baseball. And so that ended, that ended up happening. And so, you know, the, the, the book that mixes a little bit of truth with fiction, because my grandfather told my dad the story and there's a lot of holes in the story that they really didn't know about. And so my dad had to fill it in. But essentially, the Navy and the Army, when, when the soldiers were in North Africa um, fighting the Germans before they moved into Europe, there was a, supposedly a baseball team there. And then and the Army and the Navy would play together and the troops who were fighting on the front would come back and they, they could watch a game and take their mind off of it. And then go back out, and and so for a time they were they were playing uh, in North Africa, and then when the when they moved into Europe, uh, there was no time for baseball, and so they sent the they sent them back home. So the Navy baseball team was was sent back to Louisiana, where essentially they were just playing baseball all day. Uh, they didn't have any job. They weren't you know some of the guys were they were all going to be pro baseball players. So, but at the time the Germans were the Nazis. The Germans were were winning the war in the Atlantic. They had hundreds or maybe even thousands of U-boats, which were submarines. And they were communicating with each other with a device called the Enigma decoding machine. And there's actually been some movies made about that. Red October. Um, cool. Well, that was Russian. That was a, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but I, I heard U-boat. U-boat, yeah. yeah. There was a Matthew McConaughey movie. I forget what it's called. Maybe U-5701 or something like yeah. that. Uh, you know, but there was, and then there was another one that was strictly about the Enigma machine. But the, the Enigma machine was really considered one of the first text messaging devices. Mm -hmm. And so the Nazis were able to basically kind of text each other. It was a huge machine on the, you know, but the, the allies couldn't decode. They couldn't. 
they couldn't figure out what they were talking about. I saw I saw that movie mm-hmm. where they were trying to these guys are always trying to decode the messages. Mm-hmm. They're intercepting the messages and they're trying to decode it. Yes. I think I saw one of those movies. I don't remember the name of it, but I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. So that yeah. and that was that was big technology at the time. And so the the Allies really wanted to capture that so they could learn about it, decode it, and figure it out. And so there was a, a U-boat called the U-505 that actually was captured off the coast of Africa. And and they the, when the Allies captured it, it was really a big deal. I mean, to, to capture one of these things, it took an aircraft carrier and, and you know, airplanes in the sky and destroyers. Just to capture one of these was, was a, just a huge deal. So they captured one, one called the U-505, and they didn't tell anyone about it. And, and they, it was really kind of a... Not kind of. It was a, a, a heroic endeavor because when the Nazis knew that they had been captured, they set traps all over to blow it all up. But the the Allies boarded the ship, and somehow the traps didn't work, and uh, they were able to capture all the the submariners and tow the tow the boat back to Louisiana, which is where the baseball which players, is where the baseball, the baseball team players. was. Yeah. Okay. This yeah. is getting good. Yeah. <laughs> so so the baseball team they they that they, they weren't doing anything but playing baseball, and so. They were they were told by a captain that they're gonna, they're going to have to guard a group of top secret prisoners, um, Nazi submariners, and and so they did from from what we can tell. And the 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 Nazis, they were thrown into a camp, and, and the the camp at that time was was not your regular prison. I mean, they were allowed to read books, and they got good food, and they were treated really well, but. Uh, they were still prisoners of war, and they were held against Geneva Convention. And the reason they did that convention code, you're supposed to allow, you're supposed to inform the other side, hey, we got these troops, we got these soldiers, sailors, and and they didn't. And the reason why is because they didn't want the Nazis to know that they had captured the Enigma machine. And so they were they were they were there. The baseball team ended up guarding them, and the baseball team was really upset about it. They're like, well, hey, well, we're supposed to be playing baseball, not guarding. You know, we're getting ready for after the war when we're all going to be pros. So they ended up teaching the Nazis how to play baseball. I knew it. And so there's this whole <laughs> there's this whole story there uh, where they're they're teaching them how to play baseball. And towards the end of the war, there was talk. They didn't know. They didn't. The, the U.S. military didn't. They weren't sure if they wanted to tell anyone that they had held them against Geneva Convention code. And there were rumors that they might execute them to hide up, cover up for the fact for what they, you know, for for hiding them. And that didn't happen. But and and this part of the story, we don't know how much of it is true. Or but there was there was they they what they did is well actually there there was a game. And so what they did is to to kind of publicize it and make sure that like my grandfather in the book to publicize the the fact that they had these nazis here to ensure that they wouldn't get killed uh they they said that they were going to have a friendship game you know that the the war was over now and so they went they wanted to have a friendship game the the nazis versus the americans and or the germans versus the americans and i I guess some people from the town showed up and uh watched a game and they had a game and and uh who won uh, i think the americans yeah (laughs) yeah definitely but then, you know, at the end of the game, uh, my grandfather s- slid into home base. It hit a home run, and he broke his ankle pretty bad. Oh my! And gosh. so they they ended up. So the 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 Germans were sent home, and he ended up going. I don't know why, but he ended up going to New York and being at a hospital there, and uh, was told 
that he by the Dodgers eventually that they weren't going to take him anymore. So that really was a huge disappointment for him, and he became uh, for a time he became a pretty bad alcoholic, and uh, and the story goes on. But then he got a chance, and he actually ended up playing for the uh, a farm league for the 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 Pirates, and and uh, you know you have to read the book for the rest of the story. But yeah, that's... I will read the book. <laughs> what is your grandfather's name? His name was Gene Moore. Gene yeah. Moore. Mm-hmm. What an amazing story. I, I have 2,000 of the books in the garage, so if you uh, want, I can send yes, you one for free. I would so, love to. Will yeah. you sign it for me? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure. That is actually a really amazing story because not only are you learning so much about that history, World War II, mm-hmm. you're learning a lot about baseball. I have never heard of a farm league, and I like that it's coming from someone who is actually there but not like, you know, Part of the government or the military it's right. just yeah. just a baseball player and this is what happened to him yeah it's it was, it's a it's a it was a yeah. fun story to to work with and so i guess that, that was so painful for him he couldn't go watch his son it was too painful exactly yeah yeah so he and he didn't tell my dad that story until the day before he died the next day after the the they had seen the doctor and the doctor said he's fine fell over and had a heart attack and died So, and that my dad learned all that. And so he has a letter from the Pittsburgh farm wave that I I still have. It's framed Mm -hmm. and we kept it. And, and, you know, so we know that it did happen. That's a great story. Yeah. There's a channel, there's a radio show I listened to on KCRW or NPR Mm -hmm. who always, I can't remember the name of the show, but it's like stories from America. And it's just like two people would be like a mother and their daughter and they're telling a story of something that happened. Mm-hmm. This sounds like this would be perfect for that. Yeah. You know? you know, and there was a lot of, I don't think it was on that show, but there was a lot of shows like that that I interviewed my dad at the yeah. time. And yeah. That's a great story. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I liked it too. I mean, yeah. I, it's, we're still hoping it gets made into a movie. You know? <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I was <laughs> going to get on to. I know it's difficult again, so disappointing to be, to like almost taste it getting mm. being made into a movie and then everything slows and stops. And so for you, it was a 10 year journey. Yes. Yeah. Well, it was, it was, a, it was a long time. So when my dad published the book, he got it, got found a publisher. He, uh, it was around 2006. Mm-hmm. And at the time I knew I was like, this would be, this would be a great to turn into a movie. And I was thinking of Sylvester Stallone and Rocky, how he had written that screenplay and won an Oscar for it. And I was mm-hmm. thinking about Matt Damon and how he had written Goodwill Hunting or him and, and some other people and got an Oscar for it. So I was like, I could turn this into a screenplay and this will be the vehicle to, to, you know, to take me to the next level as an actor. And so I started taking some writing classes and and really embarking on, on writing that story. And and I didn't know much about it at the time, but I knew that I was going to need to find a, a production company that would produce the movie. And so as luck would have it, there was just right down the street from where I lived in North Hollywood, there was a company called White Light Entertainment. And uh, I met a, a producer there at at, uh, at a Starbucks not far by, and, and, not, and he had seen me, and 
in a, in a movie called Murder in Greenwich. She's like, hey, you you were, you were played Tommy Skako in that USA Channel movie. And I said, yeah, yeah. And he goes, well, great job. And I said, well, hey, what do you do? And he worked, he's a head of development for White Light Entertainment, which is owned by a guy named Jerry Mullen, who had produced all of Steven Spielberg's stuff in the, in the 90s. And last movie he did with him was Minority Report. And they were putting together a slate of films. And I said, oh, you got to hear about my dad's book. Can I, can I get a meeting? And he said, well, yeah, sure. So uh, I scheduled a meeting with him and I, I showed up at his office and I pitched him my dad's book and I didn't show him the screenplay and and but I just said look I, I'm writing the screenplay and and I'd love to get this made and he goes well let me read the book so my dad sent it out to him and he just fell in love with it and so they they wanted to make it their their number one uh their first movie that they produced so even though they had a, I think they had a slate of like 12 or 15 movies so he ended up rewriting it what I had done and I I, I co-wrote it with him and and really moving towards getting that made. And so once it took about three months to get the first draft done, and mm-hmm. then we moved on to uh, just refining it and making it better. But during that time, he was he was talking to financiers and he was he was gonna get it made. And so that whole process was frustrating because that was around you know 2006, and he kept on. He's like, okay, well we're gonna make it. Uh, this spring and it'd be November. It's like, all right. So we'd, we'd be working and then spring would come around. He's like, oh, we got to push it back to summer. And then, you know, summer would come around. Oh, we got to push it back to fall. And then, and then it's next year. And that went on for three years. But then by 2009, he had, he had gotten some people who were pretty credible to, uh, to do it, to, to finance it. And so we went up and we were going to film it in Vancouver. We did all kinds of location scouting there. We had auditions, auditioned all kinds of actors and, and, and started pre-production with it. And then abruptly, uh, that guy got he got let go of White Light, and so and when that happened, everything fell apart. And it's so interesting because White Light actually never made any movies. That it was this production company that was there, and they had staff, and they were getting paid, and they were working, and they were they were getting things ready and spending money, and and they just never ended up making a movie. It was the strangest thing. I was I was so blown away by it. But that was uh, pretty depressing. And then the guy who who I was working with, he he continued to try to make it for a couple of years, and then we went our separate ways. And and uh, then me and my dad and his publisher continued on trying to get it made. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it was it was a different energy yeah Uh, so okay let's go back a little bit mm -hmm. so when the guy from white light got let go yes and you had to pick up and go on yourself Mm -hmm. what was that like well so it was there was it was very depressing for uh, a very for a few months but there was still hope because although he was let go from white light he was still raising money for other films and he was still going to be an independent uh, producer and he was out talking to people who had a lot of money. And so he actually made a deal with Jim Sheridan where Jim Sheridan and, and I, and I met Jim Sheridan over at the, uh, the Chateau Marmont when this happened. And, and he agreed to cast me as long as, uh, and he would direct and produce playing with the enemy as long as the guy, his name was David, as long as David had raised uh, enough money for him to produce his passion project. And so David was raising money and, and Jim and his daughter, actually rewrote playing with the enemy so the script that me and david had done was was canned and then jim jim and his his daughter rewrote the other one now i don't know how much to be completely full transparency how much jim sheridan had to do with that script mm-hmm. I, I suspect it was mostly his daughter but his name is is on it and uh, uh and i still have it it's it's very interesting and it was very different my dad was very upset because of the story he had changed the story mm-hmm. quite a bit but david from white light never actually raised the money for jim and so then that fell apart as well 
And, you know, that was... Yeah, this is bringing back. I'm having a little bit of PTSD myself. Are you? <laughs> yeah. Because you put your heart... I mean, the screenplays that I've written, I just poured everything into it. Um, a lot of what... A lot of the dialogue and a lot of the characters uh, have come from people I love in my own life. And I said, okay, I'm going to base this character on this person. What would she say in this situation? What would she do? And so it's not just words on a piece of paper. It's your story. It's, your, you know, your life. It's what you love. It's what you care about. Mm -hmm. Motown calls them our babies, you know? Yeah, they are. <laughs> they really are. Yeah. And it's like. So I, I feel I empathize with what how that how that must have felt. Well, and PTSD is a big you know that's a great analogy because it, it is uh, it's it's um, it's traumatic mm -hmm. you know when you think something is going to get made or you have high hopes for it and then it all falls apart and and uh, I know that when when the when it fell apart with Jim Sheridan I knew that I, I'd really got very upset over it yeah you know because by that point it was 2012 and years had passed and so what I was most upset for was I started focusing so much on playing with the enemy putting less focus on auditions and I was like oh I should have just I screwed up like I should have just kept on like just only been on auditions and kept mm -hmm. booking jobs and and uh but I went this other route and so it uh there was uh it really hit me pretty hard yeah yeah I'm sorry I had to go through that Oh, well, but, you know what? It's fine now, you know, yeah. so everything comes full circle and mm -hmm. it's it's tough. I think one day we'll all get our movies made. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think we'll all, we can all go to each other's red carpet events. And yeah, screens. absolutely. <laughs> so you and your dad decide to forge on and continue to try to get this film made. We did. We did. And. You know, at that point, I was starting to have doubts that it actually would get made, and, and we weren't working with the, any major players anymore. So we were talking to people who, who were just giving us the runaround, you know, and saying, oh, we got the money, but then not returning calls, or they'd call and say, I want to option it, but then, you, you, so you go hire a lawyer so you can, you know, have a lawyer do it, and then they don't call you back, and you're like, well, what's going on? And so I got, I, I got into a really dark place, and so I actually ended up moving back to Chicago area for a couple of years just to be around family, and and uh, yeah, I just, I, I had all kinds of regrets. I felt like I had messed up so bad, and I, I remember just like being just depressed and angry all the time, you know. Uh, just very emotional and just ve just feeling like a, a total failure. And I felt like I let everyone down. I felt like I let my dad down. I felt like I let my family down if, because they had been so supportive of me being an actor. And I had such a great start, you know, and and things really were looking up. And back when I was booking those jobs, I mean, there was a buzz. You know, everyone's like, you're going to be a star. You're going to be huge, you know. And then, you know, a few years later, I'm sitting in bed, you know, just just being a big baby and crying and, and just being, you know, just like feeling like a total loser, you know. And so it, it was it, that went on for a while. And I remember getting in a lot of arguments and fights with my parents and my dad and, you know, mostly because my dad was a very positive influence in my life. And he saw how, how dark and angry and negative I'd become. And so uh, he he continued to try to inspire me and say, hey, look, I'm talking to this new guy in Oklahoma and he says he has the money for playing with the enemy. But I had I'd stopped believing in everything by that point, you know, and I just was just, you know, working a job oh, right. and being, yeah, I was just super, super upset about it. Your dad sounds amazing. 
He was he was great. Yeah, yeah he really was. Yeah, he died in 2021, and oh, that I'm was. I'm so sorry. Yeah, thank you. Um, my dad died in 2021 too. So Did he like, really? Yeah, I can relate to that. I'm sorry. It's yeah. tough. It is. It's tough when we lose, especially when a person is like your. Uh, when it's a positive person, a person that you go to, mm -hmm. it seems like to me you probably went to, well, you guys were working on getting the screenplay done, but it seems like to me you probably went to him to talk things through and for advice a lot. I did. You know, we had an interesting relationship. It was mostly business oriented, but we connected on that level and I would talk to him every day. Yeah. I went to, my dad was a very techie kind of guy, so I'm like, what kind of TV should I buy? You know, he's very into technology, but he also knew a lot about everything. And he also gave very sound, solid, practical advice, mm -hmm. you know, so I miss that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so hard when you talk to someone and you, you lean on them and then they're just not there it's anymore. It's like poof. Yeah. You know, it sucks. It does. <laughs> so how did you pull yourself up out of that dark time? to end up here at this table with me? <laughs> well, so I just got sick of being miserable, you know, and I was causing all kinds of problems, you know, and, and with the family, just angry all the time, bitter, you know, I just become this bitter person. And, you know, and, and I wasn't raised to be like that. And my dad was, before he was an author, he was a successful businessman. He, he, he did really well in business and a few different businesses. And, and he would... He, taking me to swim practice or taking me to soccer practice or karate, all the things I did as a kid. Like I didn't get to listen to music. He was listening to like Tony Robbins or Zig Ziglar or Jim Rohn, like all these, Zig these, Ziglar. you know, yeah. you know, I went, I dated this guy once and uh -huh. he took me, I think like the second date he took me on was to see Zig Ziglar in, in did person. Did he really? Yes. What? I was like, who is as this? As a second date? Yeah. Wow. Second date. He tests these tickets. We're in, I'm like, he didn't tell me what it was. Yeah. The guy comes out, is doing all this self-help self -help stuff. Yeah. I'm like, what? Yeah. Yeah. And then I didn't, after that is when I found out how popular Sig Ziglar oh, was. Oh, he's huge. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that's funny. That yeah. is really funny, actually, a second date. Yeah. So I, I, I had always been raised around that. And, and I just, I got a job in Chicago. We lived about 60 miles south of Chicago. So I was driving back and forth. And while I was driving, I just started listening to whatever I could to help bring me out of that. Cause I, I'd look back at when I was booking jobs and I was like, I was so positive back then. I was so happy. I was so excited and, and so excited about life. And, and I, I didn't let anything get me down and, and people knew me that way. And I became this other person. So I wanted to get back to that. So I was kind of searching for the boy I used to be. And, and so I started just, just like, there's nothing you can do to change it. I mean, I can live in the past. I can constantly be upset or I could, you know, keep going and try to make it happen again. And so, and I was at, still at a very low point and, and was struggling financially and uh, wasn't modeling anymore. I wasn't doing any of that anymore. And so uh, I was just, just working a job and, and trying to save up enough to move back to Los Angeles. And uh, so, and while I was doing that, I, for a couple hours every day, I just, I would just listen into just as much positive content as I could to, to change, to change that. That's the, I think, um, people always say you have to go to therapy, which mm -hmm. I do. I do believe in therapy, mm -hmm. uh, going to see a therapist or what, you know, whatever kind of therapist you want to say. I think it's important part of our uh, wellness program or however you want to call it. But 
I think also we have an internal dialogue that uh, when I first started going to therapy, one of the things the therapist said to me was, I need you to listen to your internal dialogue Mm -hmm. and write down what you're telling yourself. And I was like, okay. I started listening and I was horrified at what I was telling myself. I wouldn't tell my worst enemy these things. Mm -hmm. But back to what you were saying about just listening to positive things, I really think that listening to positive things can help change your internal dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. You start speaking to yourself in that positive way. Mm -hmm. Because there are some people on YouTube that I started listening to. And I really, like the whole self-help thing, I thought it was so hokey. But it's great. It's so helpful to have someone speaking positivity into your life and then you in turn can pick it up and implement it for yourself. Yeah. It's, I, I, am a big believer in it. I mean, I, I, I think therapy is amazing too. And, and, but what, you know, what you're living with and what you're telling yourself is, is, is a big part of the picture. You know, if you're walking around all day and saying, Oh, I failed, I'm just a failure or, you know, I, I gained some weight. So I'm just, I'm just this fat loser or mm-hmm. whatever. You're constantly telling yourself those things. You, you really start to believe it you do. and you start to act on it, mm-hmm. you know, and you start to make decisions based on those thoughts. And so I, I knew that I was lucky enough to, to know that and, 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 and able to see how far off track I'd gotten. Yeah. And so, but it doesn't, doesn't mean that it was easy. You no, know? it's not easy. Yeah. Especially if you're doing it on your own, mm-hmm. but even still having like a resource where you can just listen to mm-hmm. people. It's also good for people who can't afford therapy sure. or who aren't in a position to go spend an hour a day to, to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, you're hustling, you were working, you mm-hmm. may not have an hour a day to take out and go do that, but you still found the time to find some sort of, therapy for yourself yeah you know yeah that's really what ended up happening and i i developed uh, enough strength and courage to move back to la and 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 start going again you know but by the time i got back i felt like the industry was completely different when did you move back and uh late 2016 oh okay but then i went home again to take care of family (laughs) (laughs) but that's that's another (laughs) but you know what you know what i admire Uh your persistence to come back yeah. So many people come here. I'm going to move to LA. I'm going to make it big. Yeah. They hit the pavement. It doesn't work out, work out for them. And they go home and they don't come back. Yeah. Because LA is a hard place to be. It's expensive. Mm-hmm. It's hard if you don't know anyone. But you've come out here and gone home, come out here, gone home. And here you are back again. Back again. So yeah. again, that determination. <laughs> well, I just feel like it's, yeah. It's just a part of me at this point, yeah. you know, so, yeah. But yeah, so yeah, so I, in 2016, and so when I booked a separate piece, that was 2002, and I felt like the the industry was totally different. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, it, I'm not sure, but I think it kind of started changing around 2009. What do you think the change is? I just remember, you know, I was auditioning for all all these uh, jobs that were on TV and film and, and paid well, and then around 2009, I started getting a ton of auditions that I never saw anywhere on TV or on, I think, I'm not sure what happened, but I, exactly. I think SAG started allowing, you know, uh, really low budget films to be union films. And so aud- uh, agencies were being flooded with a new type of audition that maybe uh, 
wasn't going to be on TV or wasn't going to be in the movie theater. And it was like new media stuff. And so I started getting all these auditions back then. But then, like I said, I was fo more focused on playing with the enemy. But by 2016, that was all I could get. And so I remember coming back and getting an agent and a manager. And they're like, you know, uh, you go audition for the student film. And I was like, that's awesome. You know, but does it pay anything? And and they're like, no. And I'm like, well, why are you sending me? Like, I used to go on Law and & Order and CSI and, you know, all these. And they're like, well, you have to build back your your you're real because all that other stuff is old now. And, and so, and that's fine. I did the auditions, but I just noticed that like, that was all the auditions I was getting. And you know, then I thought, well, maybe it's my agency. So I'd get another agent. And those were the type of auditions I was getting. And then, it, and then they're like, well, you need to go create a YouTube series and, and get noticed that way. And you need to, to do all these things. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like a whole different world compared to what it was when I had first moved out here. So uh, and and that whole experience, I really started examining the industry, and and I, I did a couple of independent films, and everybody there on the film was 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 waiting tables or or washing dishes, and everyone was just doing it as a labor of love, and no one was getting paid, and and it was so much fun, and it was great. But I, then I started realizing, I was like, well, geez, I, I wanna if this is if this is a part of Hollywood now, I want to create something that helps these types of filmmakers who are on their way, you know, and, and who haven't quite gotten there yet. And if they're, they're making movies, you know, I noticed, you know, I'm sure some of them have, but I noticed a lot of the ones on YouTube or whatever weren't making any money or they weren't able to monetize or, you know, weren't able to get enough followers to monetize. And so I, I, I started thinking, well, geez, how could we create something that would help these independent filmmakers. And so that's around 2017, 2018, I started heading in a new direction. And ultimately, uh, it was really just so I could continue to be an actor, <laughs> which is weird. But <laughs> um, so I guess you're talking about CubeStream. That's CubeStream. Cube yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I have some questions about that. First off, I'm interested in how you got to that name, mm -hmm. but we're going to get into that sure. after we come back from this break. Yeah, absolutely. All right. What people don't realize is that our ancestors were revolutionaries. So if you have Haitian blood running through your veins, you too have the DNA of revolutionaries. The revolution will not be televised, but it will be streaming. You just heard a snippet of the six-part docuseries, Audacity of Host, which explores the Haitian-American experience of Motown Maurice. You don't want to miss it. Audacity of Host is streaming now on Tubi. For more information, visit MotownMaurice.com. And we're back with Toby Moore, CEO of CubeStream. Glad to be back. Yes, yes, yes. So, Toby, I want to know, how did you come up with the name CubeStream? Well, that's interesting. So... Like we talked about, I was we were talking to financiers to make playing with the enemy who never came through. So around 2017, I started getting interested in Bitcoin and and crypto, and and I had some friends who were doing well in that, and I'm like, what what is this all about? It's so interesting, and and so I had heard about some filmmakers in Europe who had raised money for their films by doing what's called an ICO. Now an ICO, you. you probably know what it is. Uh, for, for people who don't know what it is who's listening, basically an ICO is called an initial coin offering. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of it's a lot like an IPO. So a company who wants to issue stocks 
uh, they'll, they'll sell stock to raise money for their company. And so there were some filmmakers back in 2015, 2016 who had done ICOs to raise money for their films. And so you can set it up differently, but essentially these filmmakers had said, okay, well, we're going to sell, we're going to create a, 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 a blockchain token or a cryptocurrency that represents equity in the film I want to make. And if you purchase this token, uh, you'll own equity in the film. So they were raising money by doing that. And some of them had raised, I think, up at the time, maybe I think I think the most was like 250000 and, and playing with the enemy had a much bigger budget than that. So uh, we weren't sure, but so I was like, I started calling my dad and his publisher, who was who was a partner back then. And uh, I was like, hey, we could do an ICO. And they're, they're both you know, baby boomers and they're like, well, what's an ICO, you know, and how does this work? And so, uh, so we, we started going down that path of, of trying to do, make an ICO for playing with the enemy. Well, during that time, I started researching all kinds of cryptos and I had no idea. I had no tech background, I had no tech experience at all. So I'm like, how do we, so I just started emailing cryptocurrency companies and I'm like, hey, my name's Toby, I'm an actor, uh, and I want to do an ICO. Not really understanding how any of it worked. And and uh, no one really responded because they're like, why don't you, you know, it's, a lot of them weren't really ICO platforms. Back then, Ethereum was, I think there's a bunch more now, but there was this Russian company named Byte, um, Byteball at the time who responded, and they were very enthusiastic about it. And so I was like, okay, like, so... So they, they, they said, you want to do an ICO to raise your film, we can produce the or to raise money for your film, we can produce the token for you. And, and you can do an ICO on, on our platform. I was like, that's great. So we started working with them for a few months, and uh, maybe about eight months. And they said, well, you know, to to really have a successful ICO, you have to write a white paper. And, you know, so you hear of the, these companies who, who raised a lot of money doing an ICO. They wrote like a hundred page white paper. And, and so I started reading all these white papers. And one thing they all had in common is whatever industry they were raising money for, they, they, were, they were changing the entire industry and the way it was, the, the game was played in their industry by using blockchain technology. It wasn't really just about creating a cryptocurrency. It was about using blockchain technology to change how an industry works. And so uh, the more I started researching white papers and starting to write about it, I was like, we're never going to raise the money that we need to, to make playing with the enemy um, because we're not we're not changing anything. We're just raising money for a movie and doing electronic tokens instead. Like what? How, how is it? We're just raising money. And so so as we really got into it, and, and at that time, I was seeing how much the industry had changed. I wanted to, I said, well, if we're going to do an ICO and looking at all the successful ICOs, we need to do, uh, we need to build a platform. And I remember my dad and his publisher were like, what? And I'm like, yeah, we got to be. And they're like, I thought we were making a movie. I'm like, we are. But that's more of the longer term vision. Now we're going to do a platform. And there was a lot of arguments about that. And But they, we ended up doing it. And so we never did an ICO. And that's because a lot of a lot of U.S. regulations surrounding it, and it also is very expensive to have an ICO. So we we did write the white paper, and we envisioned, you know, how CubeStream could could help the industry and 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 change things for filmmakers. So uh, we we worked on that for a couple of years, and really it was that idea that got us the financing to start building CubeStream. So we never 
did the ICO yet. We're still planning on it, but it still might be uh, off into the future. There's, especially in the USA, they're they're really kind of cracking down on crypto and and ICOs, and so it's it's really hard to do one legally. And so we just kind of stepped back from that. But that's how we got the name CubeStream. So there's actually a, a company called Blockstream that is not a, a streaming company, and they're just a, a they're I don't know what they do, but they they already had the name. I was like, oh, I wanted to call it Blockstream, <laughs> and uh, so I was like, well, CubeStream, and, and it really refers to crypto. And it's funny because there's no crypto on the platform. You know, but that is the long term vision is that we do. It's not about really creating a cryptocurrency. It's about using that technology to solve problems. And so that is the long term vision of CubeStream. And that's how we came up with the name. So I was like, well, what's what's like a cube it's, or what's like a block? It's it's a cube. So <laughs> so that's uh, that's how we came up with the name. So if I'm a filmmaker and I have a film mm -hmm. and I go to your platform, how does your platform help me make my film? So right now it does not help you make your film, mm -hmm. uh, but you once your film is made, mm -hmm. uh, you'll be able to upload it, charge whatever price you want, and keep sixty percent of the okay. of the of the income. And so what we want to do, and, and what's really uh, makes CubeStream special where it is right now in its beginning stages, is we want to help filmmakers promote their films. You know, so obviously it's impossible to promote every film, but we want to find the best filmmakers and really really help them make money. CubeStream comes into play after your film has already been made and you need like distribution and promotion and marketing. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, so there's there's uh, I think in 2019, 2020 was the last before the pandemic. There was something like 14 or 15,000 films that were submitted to Sundance and they accepted less than 1% of them. And obviously there's a million film festivals out there, but it's very hard to, to get a film picked up by a studio if they're not picked up by a major uh, festival. And so with, you know, the, so accepting 1%, they only accepted like 150 or something like that. And so there's thousands of films that never really see the light of day. Mm -hmm. And so we're here to help those filmmakers have a place to showcase their films and hopefully make some money. You know, what we like to refer to ourselves as Bandcamp for filmmakers. Bandcamp is a, a great company. They're, they're for musicians. musicians. Musicians can upload their music, charge whatever price they want, and, and keep uh, keep most of the, the revenue. And so we always thought, well, geez, why isn't there a Bandcamp for filmmakers? And so that's uh, that's really what we set out to do. CubeStream is in the very beginning stages. We're still in beta and we're still working out some of the bugs. We have uh, around 200 films right now, but we're we're about ready to open it up. And it's most of these filmmakers are there by invite only, mm -hmm. you know. And so, and some of them are there who weren't invited, but their friends told them about it, and that's fine. You know, we've been testing and working out the bugs, but uh, the next phase, yeah, we're really gonna open it up to a few thousand filmmakers and really start pushing. Um, the content and, and hopefully make some people some money, you know. Is there any other projects that you're working on other than CubeStream? Well, so as far as projects, I mean, there's 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 the, the three screenplays that I wrote with my father that we want to get those. To, we're probably going to make those with, with CubeStream. And I mean, at this point, why wouldn't we? And so uh, right now I am just trying to form uh, relationships with filmmakers. And I love filmmakers. I love the film industry. And I never thought, I never saw myself like doing something like this, but I'm having a lot of fun. And I like connecting with filmmakers. And so that's mostly where, where I'm focused right now. I, we, CubeStream, we are interested in making movies. We want to make CubeStream originals. There already are some CubeStream originals, uh, but we didn't actually, we, we just kind of helped a little bit with some of the filmmakers, but we didn't actually produce them ourselves. So that is the direction we're headed. And uh, uh, 
outside of that, I, I'm, a, I'm a syndicated columnist, so I, I write um, I write a weekly column <laughs> for some newspapers, and and so that's really the other project that I that's work on. That's great. Where yeah. can we find that column? Well, that, that's in newspapers, and I need to I need to I've written like 110 of them now. I've been doing it for two years. So my dad my dad was a columnist, and he wrote uh, a column called Positively Speaking, and it's about being positive. So I, he when he died, he's like, I want you to take it over. I'm like, No, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, you know. And after I thought about it for a couple of days and I knew he wanted me to do it, so I, I took it over. And so it's it's mostly, I mean, it's, I don't actually know how many newspapers it's in because I'll write for a company and they may have several publications that they put it in that are like different newspapers. But so, so yeah, that's the other project I do. I like that. I like the sound. Positively speaking. Yes, positively speaking. And it's just, it's, we don't get into, I don't get into politics. I don't get into, it's just about. Being positive. Being positive. Yeah. Well, we certainly need more of that. Yeah. You know, I don't know how many people it helps, but, you know, it helps me because yeah. I have to review these concepts every week and I have to really think about them and, and read it. And I'm like, wow, you know, this is so it helps me really focus in and, and really I think it helps CubeStream a lot, too, because I have that attitude going into it. So you're not sure where we can find the column? Or? Well, OK, so I, I, I haven't been updating it, but uh -huh. I, I have a Medium account. Okay. And I need to upload the rest of them. I, I kind of stopped uploading them because they're they're really just printed in local newspapers. Okay. So there's I think I think I tried to add it up one time. I think I think those newspapers land on around eight hundred to a million doorsteps every week. Okay. I um, have a Medium account. Do you? Okay. Yeah. So yeah. folks, if you're looking to check out Toby's um, column called Positively Speaking. There's an app. It's also web-based. It's called Medium. And there's all sorts of writers on there. Um, you can be a writer and a reader. You can create an account and write your own stuff. Or you can go there and just read. So check it out. Look for Toby's, Toby Moore, Positively Speaking, on Medium. Yeah, I'll start <laughs> uploading. I have so many I haven't uploaded yet because some of the, the newspapers, they, they were like, well, you know, if you're going to put them up, uh, put them up down the line because mm -hmm. we don't want our readers to stop, you know, yeah. not that they're they're subscribing to that paper for me because they're most certainly not. It's local news, but mm -hmm. but it's in the it's in those. So well, that's fair. Yeah, I'm glad to hear there's newspapers still being printed somewhere. Yeah. Well, you know, they're they're starting to my, my local newspaper where I'm from. They, they just went to three or four days a week. They have a week oh, or really? four days a week now. Yeah. That was just a, a new. So I the trend is. I think going to be all online. So at my office building um, in the mailroom, the guys used to come around every day with a cart and deliver everybody's newspaper. Mm -hmm. We definitely don't do that anymore. We've gone to on company purchased an online account so everybody can just go online. Yeah. 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 That's the way it's headed. That's the way it's headed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if people want to reach out to you about CubeStream or anything else, where can they find you? Uh, you you could go to CubeStream. You could you could email support at CubeStream.com. I'll, I'll see or you could email Toby at CubeStream.com. Uh, that would be more of a direct line okay. to me. And and uh, I don't know. Does Medium allow messaging? I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, I guess the best the best way uh, would be Toby at CubeStream.com. I'll, I'll test it out. Yeah, I'll test it out. Yeah. yeah. Well, Toby, it's been well. First, I want to say you're a lovely person. You really have wonderful energy about you oh thank you very much yeah. feel the same way about you <laughs> feelings you. mutual and motown yes motown of course <laughs>
Um, and I want to thank you for being here today. I really enjoyed hearing about your grandfather and your father and see how they've rubbed off on you. Yeah. And um, so, folks, with that, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you never have to miss a single episode of Sip and Chat Cafe. He has seen me do that every Saturday for months. Oh, and really? He still laughs like he's never seen me <laughs> do it. That's a great ending. <laughs> it is. It is. It is.